hello, and welcome back to another episode of Crimes and Witch Demeanors, the paranormal podcast where we go beyond the Wikipedia page and delve into historic sources to find the truth behind your favorite ghostly tales. I'm your host and lovable librarian, Joshua Spellman. All right, so, so many things are happening right now. The last vestiges of summer are upon us, and that means it's pretty much de facto autumn and the time to tell spooky tales in the dark. Essentially, for lack of a less, um, I don't know, just annoying, stereotypical thing, it's spooky season, folks. It's spooky season. So throughout the months of September and October, it's my goal to have an episode out pretty much, hopefully, every week to keep your ghoulish appetites satisfied. Now, that being said, I have lost some free access to my usual sources, which sadly, information isn't free for everyone, and it really should be, but that's a tale for a different podcast. So now I'm paying for a lot of the resources that I use, which is also very sad. But to kind of make up for it, I am selling some merch, which sounds really stupid and like cliche as well and annoying. I really just made it for myself and I've been wearing it for a couple months and using it. I have like a sticker on my water bottle, but I decided to like let you guys also buy it if you want to like support the podcast. So I have a couple of fun designs up. Um, I have like the podcast ghost logo. I have the original podcast artwork by Gianna Ligamari, who also worked on the new Jellystone. So go watch that. And I drew a little bibliographer ghost design. He's just like a cute little ghost with specs in a book. I've tried to keep the cost of these merch items as low as possible. So if you're interested in supporting the podcast, please head over to crimesandwitchdemeanors.com and pick out something from the shop. All proceeds go to supporting like the resources and stuff that I use. Whatever tickles your fancy, I'm sure there's something there for you. And if not, don't worry about it. I'm not pressing for anyone to actually buy this merch. I don't do this podcast to make money. I do it for fun and to share these really amazing stories in history with you guys and gals and non-binary pals. But enough housekeeping. Let's just get into today's episode. Today we're looking at Grumblethorpe, which is located in Philadelphia's Germantown. This is a house haunted by not only a hilarious name, but also restless spirits. So what does a persistent bloodstain, freshly baked bread, and wisteria have to do with Grumblethorpe and its ghosts? Well, let's go ahead and listen to the legend's misconceptions and misspellings before we dig in and really discover the truth. So, without further grumbles from the audience, let's uh, delve right in. In 1744, John Wistar, later anglicized to Wister, a German immigrant, merchant, and wine importer, built his summer home in Philadelphia's Germantown. While modern-day Germantown is smack dab in the middle of the hustle and bustle of city life, at the time it was a somewhat rural area just outside of the city. Grumblethorpe has a facade made of stones that were quarried on the property, and the oak used to build the house came from the Wister Woods, also owned by the family. You see, the Wister family was quite prominent already. John's brother Casper, being a German-born glassmaker, was one of the first German colonists in Pennsylvania, and the Wister family's renown would only grow with time, boasting many famous and significant historical figures. 
Grumblethorpe was built on the fertile soil of Schuylkill Valley and quickly became one of the most productive gardens in the region. It operated as a working farm and set horticultural trends in America for nearly two centuries. In fact, the Worcester family was so influential in the world of horticulture and botany that the famed botanist Thomas Nuttall named the wisteria plant after the third-generation occupant of the home, Charles Worcester Sr. Wisteria still blooms on the property each spring alongside America's oldest known ginkgo tree. Charles Worcester Sr. is also the occupant who renamed the home Grumblethorpe, but we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here and skipping over how this home really came to be a haunted destination. In 1777, Grumblethorpe, then just referred to simply as John Wister's Big House, was caught up in the events of the Revolutionary War. Recovering from his injuries at the Battle of Brandywine, British Brigadier General James Agnew occupied the home as his headquarters. Only a few short days after he arrived, the Battle of Germantown began to rage. On October 4, 1777, General James Agnew rode into battle ahead of his troops, and he was shot in the back by a hidden civilian sniper by the name of Hans P. Boyer. Desperate to find safety, he managed to make it all the way back to Grumblethorpe, bursting through the front doors and bleeding to death on the parlor floor. The bloodstain still remains to this day. Agnew's spirit often manifests in the parlor as a shadowy black mist that hovers above the stain and meanders through the home, sending chills down visitors' spines. On the anniversary of his death, it has been reported that if you stand atop the bloodstain, you can hear Agnew's pained whimpers and cries in the last moments of his life. After the war, the house remained the Worcester's summer home until the yellow fever epidemic of 1793 when the family fled Philadelphia and made it their year-round residence. While the Worcesters themselves were spared death by disease, the same could not be said for the beloved maid, Justinia Hamburger. Justinia was a kind-hearted soul who was known to bake bread every Friday evening to distribute to the poor on Saturday mornings. After being sick for some time, one night Justinia appeared to John Wister's daughters in their bedroom in Grumblethorpe, which may not have been odd, but she was supposed to be at their home on Market Street. The girls thought nothing of it until the next morning, when the family heard word that Justinia had died the evening before in her sleep. Justinia's spirit still lingers the grounds of Grumblethorpe, and on Friday evenings, just after sunset, the smell of freshly baked bread often wafts through the property. Justinia is a friendly, calming presence, which is a stark contrast to General Agnew's, and her ghost is most often only spotted by small children. Both light and dark energies reside inside of this historic home, which is now a museum, farmer's market, a spot for historic reenactments of the Battle of Germantown, and a home to the annual party fondly known as Grumblefest. When you visit Grumblethorpe, it's a gamble. Will you be greeted with the scent of freshly baked bread and a smile from Justinia? Or will you hear the agonizing sounds of death as you witness a black mist swirling above the blood stain in the parlor? If you're looking for ghosts, no matter what you get, you shouldn't grumble about it when it's not quite what you were expecting.
I cannot tell a lie. Well, except for literally all of the ones I just told you. It's really not my fault, though. It's just how these stories are often told. While the gist of these stories is actually quite correct, there are plenty of things that are often mistold and misquoted and misconstrued. The ghost of General Agnew, for example, might have a couple more reasons for haunting the property other than just simply dying there. And before we really delve into the history, I just want to say I chose today's episode solely on the name Grumblethorpe. It just sounded so ridiculous. It just sounds like some weird made-up English town written for a comedy or Harry Potter or something of the sort. And it actually kind of is. So the name was actually chosen, again, by Charles Jones Wister Sr. after reading Edward Nair's 1811 novel, Thinks I to Myself, a serio-ludicro-tragico-comico tale, which I guess is some kind of tragic comedy, I don't know. So the name being hilariously weird, it kind of makes sense coming from a hilariously weird novel. Then again, I haven't read the novel, so I don't know if the name is in it or if it's simply inspired by the novel. That remains to be seen. Could I have possibly bought this book and looked through it to find out? Sure. Uh, Did I? No, I didn't. So my apologies. But before we get to the ghosts, while we're still on the topic of Charles Wister Sr., let's talk about the ginkgo tree and wisteria plant. So the ginkgo tree on the property is the oldest surviving female ginkgo tree in America, often touted as the oldest surviving ginkgo tree in America, which is not true. The oldest ginkgo tree, the male ginkgo tree, actually doesn't lie very far from Grumblethorpe at all, and it's in Bartram's garden. It was one of the original three trees sent from London to the U.S. in 1785. However, the ginkgo at Grumblethorpe wasn't planted until 1830 by Charles. So Charles planted this tree. It's no wonder that he may have some kind of interest in botany in a horticulture. And yeah, he did. So the wonderful wisteria plant, was it named after Charles Wister? Now this is kind of hotly debated. So wisteria, also known as wistaria, you know, spelled differently, uh, has two stories for its name's origin. One being that Thomas Nuttall named the plant after Charles Wister, whose father, Daniel, paid for the voyage of the Empress of China, which is a ship, it's not the actual Empress of China, which brought the wisteria vine to America. The other origin of the name comes from Caspar Wistar, whose name might sound familiar. You might remember the name of John Wister, formerly John Wistar, his brother. His name was Casper, who was a glassblower. Though this isn't the same Casper Wistar, this is his grandson, Dr. Casper Wistar, who was a staunch abolitionist, vaccination champion, which, God, we need one now, and also a physician. In this version of how the wisteria got its name, the plant was not dubbed by Nuttall, It was said to be named by Jose Francisco Correa de Serra, a Portuguese botanist who lived in Philadelphia in 1812, four years before his appointment as ambassador of Portugal to the United States. During his time in Philadelphia, Francisco became a very close friend of Dr. Casper Wister, and it was said, quote, he took tea at his home daily and named the vine Wisteria to commemorate this friendship. And interestingly, this branch, for lack of a better pun, of the Wister family sprouted, there's another one, another famous botanist, John Casper Wister, who lived from 1887 till 1982. It does seem to boil down to the Wister family in one way or another. Whether it's the Wister family or the Wister family, uh, it's one of them. So, you know, that's a half-truth. But this split etymological origin also explains the different variations of spelling for wisteria, whether that be a wisteria or wisteria. Anyways, I found that rather fascinating. 
Don't worry, we're almost to the ghosts. But Charles Wister is very interesting. He's a very interesting man. So one last fun fact about Charles Wister Sr. is that he kept a diary of the weather every day for decades. This diary is actually still used by the weather authorities in Philadelphia to use as like a benchmark for declaring the highest and lowest temperatures on record for the region. Now, I can go on about Charles Wister and the other famous Wisters probably for a couple of hours because there are a lot of them. A quick rundown of a couple are Owen Wister, the author of The Virginian, who spent many summers as a young boy at Grumblethorpe. Or Sally Wister, who lived at Grumblethorpe during the Revolution and whose diary is still being published today. So another famous Wister diary. Sally's diary provides invaluable insight into the life and the thoughts of a teenage girl during the time of the American Revolution, which is a very unique perspective. So here we are, finally, a segue into the Revolutionary War and our first ghost of British Brigadier General James Agnew. So the story goes that he was shot in the back by a civilian sniper by the name of Hans P. Boyer, who belonged to neither the colonial army or the allied militias. So this falsehood has been propagated for like hundreds of years by a number of books written during the antebellum period. However, many other sources who knew Boyer personally referred to him as being half-witted and, quote, a miserable boasting fellow, which honestly just suggests that he kind of made this up and bragged about it and took credit for something that he didn't do. And other than, you know, secondhand accounts in books, we do have a more reliable source of information, which is a letter from Agnew's loyal servant, Alexander Andrew, who was with Agnew at the time of his death. This is a letter he sent to Agnew's widow, Margaret, in England, only a few months after his death, in a letter dated March 8th, 1778. Andrew wrote that colonial forces were, quote, 500 yards in front of Agnew, and that he was shot receiving a whole volley from the enemy. Quote, the fatal ball entered the small of his back, near the back seam of his coat, right side, and came out a little below his left breast. Another ball went through and through his right hand. So Agnew died from a hail of shots fired from muskets from a great distance of 500 yards by a troop of over 100 men. A number of different shots hit him as the letter by Andrew states, so it's impossible to really credit Agnew's death to a single man. And the fact that Boyer wasn't really allied with colonial forces uh, kind of sheds some doubt on the fact if he was even there and if he ever even shot anyone. He seems kind of just like the town fool. I don't know. But also, Charles didn't make his way back to John's big house, or Grumblethorpe, as it would later be known, on his own, as in the story. He didn't burst through the parlor doors and die in the parlor. What actually happened is that he was carried there by a number of men, among them being Alexander Andrew. But I will say, the bit about his bloodstain still being in the parlor today is absolutely true. It's still there, and you can go and see it. So Agnew's body was buried in one spot, but being a British general, they were worried that it was going to be dug up and defiled in some manner by colonial people. So it was eventually later moved to its present location in the de Beneville family burial grounds. More or less, he's buried alone, having been moved from one grave to another in a foreign country. He came to America as a, I was going to say a British general, but he wasn't. He was some other rank before he was promoted to general. But he left his wife and his son behind in England. And he died here in America. He never had a chance to say goodbye to his family because they stayed in England and were never able to come and visit his grave. 
Perhaps this is why his languished spirit haunts the home in such a dark and sinister manner. Maybe he is mourning his chance never to say goodbye to his family and dying alone in a foreign country. Honestly, I'd be pretty upset too. So his ghost is seen. It has been seen by Diana Thompson, the museum's education director, who saw, quote, a black shape low to the ground spinning very quickly from the dining room into the colonial parlor. And she simply told it, I'm not in the mood for this. And the shape vanished and disappeared, which I find hilarious. I'm not sure what intonation she used, because I think there's a number of ways you can be like, I'm not in the mood for this. But whatever she said, it was just like, what kind of a reaction is that to seeing a ghost? And then it's like, okay, bye. I hope that if I ever see a horrifying, sinister shape spinning from the ground out of a bloodstain, that my reaction would simply just be like, I'm not in the mood for this. Goodbye. But at a later date, it actually turns out that her son asked her, like, have you ever seen a black shape moving very fast in the parlor? So she's not the only one that has seen it, though it often manifests as a black mist. Eyes and full-bodied apparitions have also been seen in the dining room mirror. And there's also a story of a couple of volunteers being upstairs and seeing their shadows on the wall. There were three of them, but there was a fourth shadow there as well. And while all the volunteers were wearing t-shirt and jeans, it was clear that the fourth shadow was wearing a dress. So could that possibly be the ghost of Justinia? It's definitely possible. And while Justinia was real, her story is a bit convoluted. I really didn't manage to dig very much up on her. I did find a 422-page landscape report on Grumblethorpe, and her name was only mentioned once in passing. It was said that after John Wister's death, provisions were made for Justinia, the orphan daughter of Justin Hemberger, who served as a housekeeper for the Wisters. And that was kind of it. There was really nothing else about her. I couldn't find any census records or a grave or anything. And you might be saying, like, of course you wouldn't. She died in 1793 because she was there during the yellow fever epidemic. Uh, she wasn't. It was actually her father who succumbed to the disease in 1793. After her father's death, Justinia was orphaned, as mentioned in the report, and was taken in by the Wisters before she could be sent away to an orphanage or some other, like, worse, horrifying fate for a young woman at the time. Justinia was beloved by the family, and she soon ascended to the position of house manager. She served the family for a very long time, and like the story, she was known to bake bread for the poor on Friday nights to distribute Saturday mornings, as the legend says. So she actually lived a while longer, and she died sometime in 1820, and her spirit did appear to the young girls in their bedroom at Crumblethorpe. But again, I couldn't find a grave for Justinia. I couldn't find anything about her death because I do have access to some of the newspapers at the time. But at the very least, we know that she did exist and that her ghost very well may be haunting the property. I tried to find some more firsthand encounters of ghosts on Reddit and like TripAdvisor reviews and articles. And there really isn't much aside from the education director, the story of the shadow, and just the articles generally just saying that volunteers, you know, get spooked and that their parents are afraid to pick them up from the house. But all in all, I think Grumblethorpe is really interesting. Uh, there really isn't a dark history there. There is one bad event that happened, and otherwise, the family flourished and produced really cool people in history. The house was occupied by the Wister family for over 160 years before in the 1960s, I believe, being kind of like sold off and turned into a museum. So what do you think? Is Grumblethorpe haunted by the grumbling spirit of a slain British general? 
Honestly, I do think he has a reason to haunt the place. He died alone in a foreign country, and his body was exhumed and moved, and it makes sense that he's, like, restless and lonely. Although, it does appear that the haunting of Agnew is more of a passive haunting, kind of like a psychic imprint of the tragic event of his death, while Justinius seems to be a more active, conscious spirit and presence. But, you know, perhaps it's for the best because Justinia is a happy, carefree spirit who bakes delicious ghost bread and, you know, says hi to your children. Like, that sounds fun. I do want to visit Philadelphia and I do want to visit Grimblethorpe because it looks beautiful. The gardens and everything are completely restored. The home is restored. There's a lot of original things in there. There's so much history and they have a lot of really cool events. While I'm not really into the Revolutionary War or, like, war at all, I'm kind of a pacifist, which is surprising given my tone and sarcasm. I, I'm a sensitive bean. But they do have Grumblefest, which sounds amazing, and a farmer's market, which is more my speed. Let's get some fresh produce and maybe bake some ghost bread. Like, that sounds fun. So uh, that's it for today's episode. As always, please, if you listen on iTunes, give us a nice five-star review. Say something nice. It warms my little cold heart. If you listen on Overcast, hit that star button. Again, don't know what it does, but it makes me a star or something like that. And no matter where you listen, especially now that it's spooky season, share this podcast with your friends, post it on your Instagram story, just spread the word, because I want to really get more stuff out there for spooky season. I really do think that my podcast gives a unique perspective on hauntings that other podcasts might not. Maybe that's just me. I like to think I'm special. We all think that we're special, but maybe I'm not. I don't know. Anyways, also, if you want to continue to support the podcast, buy a little something-something from the merch shop. Other than that, keep your nose out for some delicious ghostly sourdough. And as always, stay spooky. Bye. Bye.